In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has been telling the church how to view leaders in the church. Christian leaders are only servants of Christ. Alex and I, your pastors, we are mere farmhands, New City. We're not to be accorded an allegiance reserved for God alone. No pastor is, not even the likes of John MacArthur or John Piper or fill in your favorite pastor there. Uh, The church is not to view any particular servant of Christ as a group guru. Because if we do, that means other servants of Christ's are implicitly inferior. What a disaster. Uh, Because when different groups within the church has its own Christian guru, there are two evils. There is unnecessary division within the church, and with it, censorious condescension that pronounces judgment on who is worthy to be a guru and who is not. I follow Pastor John. I follow Pastor Alex. In our text today, Paul takes this important matter one step further. Look at your big picture in your bulletin. The Corinthian Christians must forget their supposed wisdom and their boasting in certain leaders and assess their own status properly as people who belong to Christ. Furthermore, they must recognize that church leaders also belong to Christ as servants who must be found trustworthy. Since Christ is their Lord, he alone will judge, and the Corinthians should not rush in to do the Lord's work before he returns. Wise leadership will be commended by God. And so our sermon title today is neither boast about church leaders nor presumptuously judge them. Dividing over church teachers part six. That's an elegant mouthful to be sure, but it gets right to the point. All this to say, as you turn your fond gaze to the framed portraits on your mantle of Pastor John and Pastor Alex, how should you be thinking of us? As farmhands? Yes. As builders? Yes. And as those who must prove faithful to the one to whom we are ultimately accountable, the Lord Jesus. As those entrusted with the mysteries, God has revealed the gospel of his crucified Messiah. These are fundamental insights into the nature of Christian leadership, New City, and the first seven verses of chapter 4 Paul draws out two corollaries. Look at your bulletin, number three, number four. Christian leaders must prove faithful to the one who has assigned them their fundamental task. Number four, those who follow Christian leaders must recognize that leaders are called to please the Lord Christ and must refrain from standing in judgment over them. When the Lord returns, then the final accounting will be done. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Which is, I think, a wonderful thought for pastors, that last verse, because it appears from this text that the final judge will prove more encouraging and positive than many human judges. So, Pastor Alex, be encouraged. Okay, let's pick up where we left off last week, Paul's construction metaphor, where the apostle warns the church's teachers that they must take care how they build God's church, with what material they use to build God's church. You'll recall there was a heavy emphasis placed on the accountability of the builders, of the pastors, God owns the building, he owns the church, and he judges the quality of the work of each builder. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. That is the day of the Lord. So 
the building material of the church is either flammable, wood, hay, or straw, or non-flammable, gold, silver, or costly stones. This is a picture of pastors building up the church with spurious converts or genuine converts. On the last day, it will be revealed what sort of building material was being employed. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work, each builder's work. If what has been built survives, verse 14, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So there is a warning to pastors, if there ever was one. Alex, brother, it is possible to build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day we have nothing to show for our labor. This nightmare scenario Paul presents of a pastor running out of a burning church. Sure, we're saved, but the church burns. God forbid. God forbid. Alex, if New City is being built with with large portions of charm and personality and easy oratory and positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. And then Paul says this, verse 16, the first verse of our text today. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And it's crucial to understand that in this context, God's temple doesn't refer to the human body, but to the church. We looked at this last week, but elsewhere in this letter, in chapter 6, verse 19, this same metaphor is used to foster uh, sexual purity in the individual. Uh, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual Christian, and so it's important to keep that temple pure. But that's not an issue... At this point here, what Paul's saying here is this. He's saying Corinthian Christians, he's saying New City Christians. Haven't you grasped that the Spirit of God animates the body of Christ on earth, the church, the community of the redeemed? That's the building. That's the temple on which all the builders have been working. And God loves the church. And he jealously guards it as a dwelling place of his own spirit. So the stakes are that high. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So, in light of the immediately preceding verses, this warning is directed in the first place against the builders, against the pastors who have resorted to combustible materials, wood, hay, straw, that cannot withstand the fire on the last day. However, Paul's language opens up the warning to apply to others than just church leaders alone. Notice he doesn't say, if any builder destroys God's temple, but if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. It's it's very inclusive language. And by using such inclusive language, Paul may be considering the kind of damage being done to the church by the Corinthians themselves. We're, we're just in the first stage here. I'm dividing up the book of 1 Corinthians into 10 problems that they are facing and that the gospel addresses each one. This first problem that's being addressed is division over church teachers. And this is destroying the church. By diverting attention away from the gospel, while focusing on the praises and approval of the world and its wisdom, the Corinthian believers are in danger of undermining the very message that called the church into existence. Now, beloved, the the ways of destroying a local church are many. It's varied. Uh, A party spirit will do it. Just divisions within the church. Uh, Heresy will do it. False teaching. That will destroy the local church. Taking our eyes off the cross and letting more peripheral matters dominate the agenda, 
That will do it. I mean, sure, it'll take longer uh, than heresy, but it's just as effective over the long haul. Let me, let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. If in your thinking, I'm speaking to Christians, if in your thinking, cultural transformation and cultural redemption becomes the great promise and point of the gospel, then you've just pushed the cross of Christ, deliberately or not, out of its prime position. If your highest excitement and joy, Christian, are ignited by the promise of a reformed culture, rather than the work of Christ on the cross, you are in error. If your most fervent appeals are for people to join God in his work in changing this world, rather than repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, you are in error. If you say the Bible's storyline pivots on the remaking of this world rather than the substitutionary death of Jesus, you are in error. With this kind of thinking, Christianity becomes less and less about grace and faith and more a religion of live like this and we're going to change the world. That's not Christianity, that's moralism, and that destroys the gospel, it destroys the local church, as does building the church with superficial conversions and and wonderful programs that, that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God or entertaining people to death but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love. Sure, it might, it might build up an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God, as will gossip, as will prayerlessness, bitterness, biblical illiteracy sustained over the long haul, self-promotion, materialism. All of these things and many more can destroy a local church. And to do so is dangerous, very dangerous. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. You together are that temple. Brothers and sisters, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Damage the church, desecrate God's temple, and God will destroy you. I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. Beloved, this calls for, on all our parts, thoughtful self-examination and repentance. In the light of the fact that God cares about his temple and holds to account those who destroy it, Paul sternly writes in verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So Christian, be warned. Be warned. It's a warning text. Don't think that you can adopt the philosophies and values of this world without those choices having a profoundly detrimental impact on the church. Don't think you can get away with it. Hip, young Torontonians, hear me. Don't kid yourself that you are with it, that you're an an avant-garde Christian, when in fact you're leaving the gospel behind and doing damage to the church. As Paul's already explained in detail in the first two chapters of this letter, the path of true wisdom is to side with God. He utterly reverses so many of the values that this world cherishes, right? What the world judges to be wise, God dismisses as just sheer folly. What the world rejects as foolishness is nothing less than God's wisdom, The world loves power. The world loves prestige. Yet Jesus stumbles to the cross in weakness. And that weakness accomplishes God's eternal redemptive plan. It's stronger than all the world's supposed strength. The the world pants after strong leaders. 
But leaders in the church must first of all be servants of the Lord Christ. The world loves to parade its heroes, all of its gurus. But Christians remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies, so that no one may boast before him. The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than content. But Christian preachers prize truth above style. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of great reversal that anyone who understands the cross must come to grips with. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Verse 21, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. That's kind of the distilling everything to its essence right there. So then, no more boasting about human leaders in the church. It's, it's wrong because the focus is wrong. The, the concentration is on some human being and not on the Lord God. But another reason why it's wrong to focus like a laser beam on, on some individual human leader or another is that it cuts us off from the, wide, the wider heritage that is rightfully ours as Christians. I think Don Carson nails the practical application of this. Christian, you may be boasting because you think you have the best part. In fact, you're only robbing yourself because you're restricting yourself to one tiny part of the heritage that's yours in Jesus Christ. I'm of John. I'm of Alex. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Calvin. I'm of Piper. Whatever it might be. You're robbing yourself because you're restricting yourself to this really, really tiny part of the Christian heritage we all enjoy. What does Paul say? He says, all things are yours. Period. Full stop. That the promise couldn't be more expansive, more inclusive, more absolute. All things are yours. So why in the world are the Corinthians satisfied with saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Good grief. That's way too narrow. It's way too constrained. It's way too paltry a view of the Christian life. Paul's saying, look here, guys, don't you understand that Apollos and myself and Peter, along with the whole universe, is yours? You You don't belong to them. They belong to you. Because you and they are Christ's and Christ is God's, all things is yours, are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all things are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And following Gordon Fee, I think those five things that Paul just mentioned uh, represent fundamental tyrannies in a human's life. Uh, The things that enslave us, the things that hold us in bondage, the world, life, death, the present, and the future. And if that's so, then brothers and sisters, that makes this a defining text for the Christian life. This this gets to the the heart, I think, of everything. Learn the lessons that God has for you here, brother, sister. Believe it. Prayerfully strive to put this into practice. And you will be well on your way to Christian maturity. Of truly living a gospel-centered life. Look at tyranny number one, the world. The world tries to squeeze us. It tries to squeeze us Christians into its mold, doesn't it? It demands so much of our attention, so much of our allegiance, that we seldom devote enough thought and passion to the world to come, the unexplored dimensions of the new heavens and the new earth. We just have these blinders on, and this world, this present world, ties us down. Similarly, tyranny number two is life. This present life It just clamors to be treated as if it were worthy of ultimate respect. We we cling to life, don't we? The idolatry of a guaranteed three score years and ten. As if the Bible had never told us that our lives are a vapor that quickly vanishes when the first puff of a breeze blows by. James 4.14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We forget 
that Jesus told us not to fear those who can take away this life, but to fear him, rather, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. So where is the wisdom, then, loved ones, in endlessly striving, endlessly serving the pressures of this life if we take no thought for the life to come? At the end of life, there is only tyranny number three, death. Death is a tyranny that no one escapes. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Your spouse is going to die. Your kids are going to die. Your parents are going to die. We're all going to die. No one escapes this. And its power extends, death's power extends far beyond the mere experience of it. Uh, it looms right just over the horizon for all of us, right? It's, it's the specter of death. It casts a long shadow backwards and it constrains us for all of our lives. Even the attempt to live our lives by suppressing the thought of death, that's just really a, a pathetic pathetic response and actually it mutely attests to death's power that it has over us actually suppressing the thought i'm going to die i don't want to think about that as does our habit of setting life goals on the assumption that we're all going to live to the age of 70 more or less brothers and sisters how would our life goals change if we were planning not only for 70 years of existence here but also for eternity Do you think often, often of eternity? How would that impact our career aspirations? Don't you think it should? Our family life, our church life, how we look at our money, owning property in Toronto or not. Isn't this partly what Jesus meant when he told us to lay up treasure in heaven? Matthew 6, 19 to 21. But if we find it very hard to heed his admonition, it's because death tyrannizes us. And so the constant urgency of the present, the urgency of the present, and, and the vague promises and threats of the future, tyrannies number four and five, they combine and they divert our attention away from the God who holds both the present and the future in his hands. That's Paul's point. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. That's to say, if we truly belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, then we belong to God. And what a God. He is sovereign, brothers and sisters, over all of these petty, petty tyrannies. He's shown his great love for his people, and he's paid for our redemption at the cost of the death of his dear son. What did we just sing? Verse 3 of, uh, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future is sure, the price has been paid, for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. That's this text that we're singing. And so all of those five tyrannies, they look very, very different if we examine them from the secure position of belonging to Jesus Christ. This world, tyranny number one, becomes the gateway, really, to the next. We can no longer be tyrannized by the world because its sway is not absolute. Our allegiance belongs to another, and our vision is, is really it's being cast beyond this, this passing world to the new heavens and new earth. That's where we live. That's where our citizenship is. Which means this present life is no longer something to cling to. Just hang on to it by our fingernails, right? Rather, it's the sphere. This is the sphere in which we, we worship and serve our God in anticipation of eternal life to come in the new heavens and new earth. That just radically shifts the whole paradigm, doesn't it? And I don't just mean mortality. I'm talking about sucking life dry for every experience of self-fulfillment possible. Let me just give one example. Let me talk about parenting for a second. Here at New City, we're in a pandemic of babies. <laughs> Praise God for it. That's a good pandemic. But, but let me speak to the moms in particular. 
Not everyone loves being a mom. Not everyone is born June Cleaver. Being a mom is hard. It's exhausting. Seeing Goo Goo Gaga all day long can be mind-numbing for a smart, capable woman such as yourself. There are genuine sacrifices to motherhood. And there are all sorts of things you are not able to pursue as you once did. The lie of our culture is that you can have it all. You, you can't. And that's okay. Sister, be guided by the word of God. As a believer, you're not being asked to give up those things forever. Neither are you being asked to suppress your identity, which is in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not in your career, your ambitions, your artistic endeavors. But as a believer, you're not being asked to give up even all those things forever. Instead, you're putting those things on hold for a while. You're delaying them. You're prioritizing other things for a time. Beautiful, important things. Isn't that right? The person who exists on the other side of the grave will be very much consistent with the person who exists on this side. You will be her still, sister, except that the presence of sin and the consequences of sin will be gone. And what you do here, what you do well here, will very probably be what you do well there. Gifting and passion and skill on this side of the grave are I think, undoubtedly, a good indicator of gifting and passion and skill on that side of the grave. Sister, this means that you can confidently choose to pursue being a wife and a mother now, believing that you will have all eternity to explore those other interests and talents and passions. This means you're not wasting them now. You're not ignoring them. You're not neglecting them. You are merely choosing to prioritize other things for a time. As you've heard many times from this pulpit, contemplating eternity torpedoes shallow parenting philosophies. Parenting is all about desires and conflict. Your beautiful, your beautiful baby is an image bearer of God. He or she is made to glorify God and enjoy an eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what you've created, not just a baby, but a person who will live forever in heaven or forever in hell. Contemplating eternity torpedoes shallow parenting philosophies. There will be no marriage in the new heavens and new earth, so your only opportunity to prioritize and perfect marriage is right now. There will be no children there. So your only opportunity to make the most of mothering is right here and right now. So look at life, sister, brothers, from the secure position of belonging to Jesus Christ. That's just one example. And look at death the same way. From the secure position of knowing Jesus Christ. Death, that fearsome last enemy, cannot have the last word because our master has vanquished death. At one level... Death can even be embraced. We recognize that to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. We understand that what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, I want grace to understand that better. To die is gain and living my life for Christ. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. The present is where we live and serve God, but it can't devour me. God is no less sovereign over the present than he was over the past and will be over the future. And if he's sovereign over the future, then the future too isn't something to be feared. It can be embraced simply because we belong to Jesus Christ. Christ belongs to God, and God controls the future. So none of these five tyrannies, the world or life or death or the present or future, control us any longer, New City. Uh, They've all, all been decisively beaten. Carson writes this. 
this is so good. There is a compass of vision here that is tragically lost when all of our Christianity means nothing more than finding fulfillment or seeking personal peace or worse yet, identifying with the right party or Christian guru. We are gods and that transforms everything. And if we truly understand this, then there are no tyrannies left. We will want all that God has for us, both in this life and the life to come. And that means we will never reduce the God-sized dimensions of biblical Christianity to all that can be embraced by just one Christian teacher. No matter how able, no matter how wise. That's what the Corinthians have done. This is how Paul confronts that. The, The gospel completely dismantles that kind of thinking. Know the truth, Christian. Come to grips with the truth. Act on the truth. I think these are like our marching orders for life going out these doors. We now come to chapter 4. There are no chapters, divisions, of course, in the original text. uh, So we shouldn't think that this section is something entirely new. Uh, It's linked with what's come before, which is pretty obvious from verse 1 of chapter 4. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. That is, leaders and teachers in the church, pastors, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So Christian leaders are servants of Christ. And that that language is reminiscent of the agricultural analogy we saw last week in in chapter 3. Though, actually, the word for servant here is different than it is in chapter 3. The word here is is more of a steward. Uh, A servant whose master empowers him to manage proactively the master's private commercial estate. So Christian leaders don't think of themselves as being independent gurus and all-wise teachers. They see themselves simply as stewards. And they should want other Christians to see them that way too. I mentioned that last week. Uh, But Alex and I are servants of one particular master. We serve Jesus Christ. And at the heart of the commission that we've received from our master lies one particular assignment. We have been entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. And that's the same word, mystery, that we found back in chapter 2, verse 7. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. He's not saying that the gospel is somehow mysterious. He's saying that in some ways it was hidden before the coming of Jesus Christ, but now it's been revealed. And the gospel itself is the content of this mystery, Jesus the Messiah and him crucified. So Christian leaders, Christian pastors, we are servants. We are stewards of Christ. We're stewards who have been entrusted with the gospel. The mysteries God has uh, hidden in ages past, but is now being proclaimed to men and women all over the world. And all of our service turns on making this gospel known and encouraging the people of God by word, example, and discipline to live it out. That's what's been entrusted to pastors in every church. And from this fundamental insight into the nature of Christian leadership, Paul, I mean, he could have branched out into a hundred different directions. He just sticks to two. He says two things. There's two great points traced out over the opening seven verses of this chapter, points three and four in your sermon outline. Christian leaders must prove faithful to the one who has assigned them their fundamental task, verses one through four. And then second, those who follow Christian leaders must recognize that leaders are called to please the Lord Christ. And therefore, they must refrain from standing in judgment over them, verses 5 and 7. So look at verse 2. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And the question is, all right, faithful to whom? To the church that signs your paycheck, buddy? (laughs) No, not to the church. Not ultimately, It's to Jesus, their master. It's to Jesus. Pastors are to prove themselves ultimately faithful. Alex, we who are stewards of Christ, we who are entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed, we're not trying to to win any popularity contests here. 
uh, not even within the church's borders. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I mean, he really says some stuff where he keeps the bark on it. (laughs) Uh, There's only one person whose well done on the last day means anything to Paul. In comparison, the approval or disapproval of the church means nothing. It's not even, Alex, our own estimates of our service that's important. We may think more highly of our service than God does. We may think less of our service than God does. But if we're constantly trying to please ourselves and to make self-esteem our ultimate goal, then we're forgetting whose servant we are and whom we must strive to please. So Paul very candidly writes in verse 3, I do not even judge myself. Which doesn't mean there's no place in Paul's life for self-examination or self-discipline. What he means is that his own judging of himself cannot possibly have ultimate significance. As he puts it in verse 4, my conscience is clear. As he pens those words, Paul's not aware of any sin or failure lacking in his life, lurking in his life. Still, he doesn't know everything, even about himself. However clear his conscience may be, Paul could be self-deceived. He could be grossly ignorant. So verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. At the end of the day, there is only one opinion about his service that carries ultimate significance. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's point then is very simple. Christian leaders will constantly be aware that they owe fealty and devoted allegiance to only one person, to the Lord who bought them. Now, obviously, obviously, it's important for pastors to try to maintain peace among the Lord's people, to win their confidence, their respect, their trust. This is a relationship of love. Uh, But we have to allow the text to say what the text is saying. A pastor's ultimate allegiance must not be to the church or to any individual or to any tradition. It must be to the Lord alone and to the mysteries God has revealed in the gospel of his crucified son. And if that sometimes means that there will be a clash of wills between that leader and the church, so be it. Hear this, the foolishness of Christ crucified must prevail. Even when the church as a whole follows some fork on the road that takes it away from the centrality of the gospel. So we're not talking about the color of the carpet here or something, right? It's, it's the gospel. Is it front and center? And if the church goes off, the pastors have to bring the church back into line. What is far more tragic is the sad spectacle of so-called Christian leaders trying so hard for the approbation of their peers and their church members that their focus is diverted from the gospel. Their focus is diverted from the well-done, good and faithful servant of the crucified Messiah. Which takes us to our final point, New City. Those who follow Christian leaders must recognize that leaders are called to please the Lord Christ, and therefore they must refrain from standing in judgment over them. In other words, if it's important to see, if it's important for the leaders to see themselves as servants of Jesus entrusted with a a magnificent commission, it's also important for the rest of the church to see them, to see their pastors as ultimately accountable to Jesus and therefore to avoid judging them as if the church itself were somehow the ultimate arbiter of ministerial success. Now, be careful. I mean, if you're a visitor here today or you don't know my pastoral track record or what I'm like as a guy or Alex, I mean, you just, this sounds like how a cult gets started, right? It's what the word of God is saying, though, brothers and sisters. We have to let it say what it's saying. Be careful. I mean, it's very, obviously, it's very easy to, uh, to bleed this passage for more than it actually says. I talked about the dangers last week of, of self-appointed, so, like, I, I am an anointed pastor, therefore you can't say anything against me. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But obviously, obviously, Paul's not abolishing all functions of judgment within the church. He's not saying pastors are untouchable. Obviously not. After all, the next chapter, we're going to talk about just the the judgment function of the church in the very next chapter. He severely reprimands this church 
for failing to take disciplinary action against a case of sexual immorality in the church. And this disciplinary authority of the church extends even to the leaders of the church. Pastors aren't untouchable. In the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul expects the believers in Corinth to exercise discipline over the false apostles in the church before he arrives in town and is constrained to take drastic action himself. Or think of 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want us to turn there just for a second. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 19 and 20, where we see that casual gossip directed against the elders of the church should be ignored. But when critical reports prove true, there's a place for disciplining leaders. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. It's, it's been a few years since actually I've, we've talked about this. So just bear with me for four minutes as I take a rabbit trail here. Okay? I think this is very important. I'm going to look into these matters a bit more here because lest we think that Paul's saying the church should be, just be, be suspending all judgment when it comes to how their pastors act and behave and teach. Not at all. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. What sort of sin is Paul thinking about here when he says those elders who are sinning? Because all elders sin, of course. Uh, I sinned multiple times this week. I acted in selfishness and not in love towards my wife. I had proud thoughts. I did not love my neighbor as myself. Alex, too, same thing. But Paul isn't saying our every sin needs to receive a public rebuke. Going back to the qualification for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we can understand that those elders who are sinning are those who have somehow violated those biblical standards, right? Uh, They've sinned in some way that brings reproach upon the gospel and to the church. They're no longer above reproach. They're no longer blameless. Remember Paul's famous admonition to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's the scope that Paul has in mind here. The pastor's life, the pastor's doctrine. In either area, if an elder is found to be contradicting the gospel, then he needs to be rebuked publicly before the whole congregation. But... There are all sorts of factors at work here. Uh, This is not a cookie-cutter command for cookie-cutter sin scenarios. The church needs to consider just wisely, prudently, what's the nature of the elder's sin? Uh, Did he lose his temper with his kids in the church parking lot and the whole church saw it? Or was he caught in an extramarital affair? Those are two different things. Uh, Whatever his sin may have been, is the man repentant? Is he making self-justifying excuses? Was he caught in the sin? Or did he of his own initiative repent and confess? How long has he been sinning? How confirmed in the sin is he? And much, much more. Depending on a host of factors, the appropriate response in this kind of scenario may be, number one, a public rebuke followed by public repentance on the pastor's part, and that's the end of the matter. Two, it might be removal from the office. He's disqualified himself. He can no longer be a pastor, but not from church membership. Three, it might be outright excommunication. Out of 1 Corinthians 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Or, number four, the sin could be so grievous, the police would need to be involved. What Paul is concerned for here is that sin among the church leadership should not be hidden. It should not be shielded. There can be no favoritism here. It it must be publicly rebuked. And and why is the elder who is sinning to be reproved reproved before everyone? To, To make him feel like dirt? No. Elders are the visible leaders of the church. And their personal reputation is so closely tied to the reputation of the church and the reputation of Christ that the stakes are higher and the consequences are more severe. The leader's sin affects the entire congregation 
and they need to be reproved or rebuked before the entire congregation. And the last phrase in verse 20 gives the reason why. So that the others may take warning. And that's especially referring to the other elders. But it also applies to the congregation as a whole. It's meant to show the church the seriousness of sin and thus purify the church. The rebuke is also for the good of the elder being rebuked. It's meant to help that man see the gravity of his sin and bring him to a point of brokenness and repentance because the alternative is unthinkable. The the unbiblical alternative is to sweep the elder's sin under the carpet and cover it up to ignore it, to minimize it, That is sin, and it is devastating to a local church. That's how churches are destroyed. That's how souls are lost. That's how the gospel of Jesus Christ is dragged through the mud. Okay, here endeth the rabbit trail. So, what's going on in 1 Corinthians? In Corinth, it appears that some Corinthian believers were quite prepared to completely write off certain Christian leaders in the church, their church, simply because... They preferred to follow some other leader as a guru. To elevate one leader and offer that person the allegiance that belongs to God alone, that's bad enough. But to write off all authority in another Christian leader not only betrays just a a woeful lack of courtesy. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, well, I'm for John, so Alex doesn't count at all. He has no authority in in this church. It's just a, a woeful lack of courtesy, but also it places, it places the self-appointed judge in the place of God. That's Paul's point. We don't know the end of the story. This is kind of the, some further considerations that ought to sort of temper our judgment of pastors. We don't know the end of the story. Some pastors who start well finish poorly. There's a very famous podcast going on right now talking about that. Uh, Others who start slowly and hesitatingly finish with a flourish of triumph. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we don't know the heart motives of the people, the pastors that we're judging. That's a prerogative preserved for God alone. Look at verse 5b. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart, the pastor's motives of heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. There are some leaders who function uh, very ably, very competently, and, uh, and can please great, huge crowds, but whose hearts are seething swamps of lust and arrogance and ambition. There are others, less gifted perhaps, who struggle quietly and faithfully against major disappointments and pressures, but their heart cry, their heart cry is, oh Lord, send me, here I am. Just use me, make me as holy and loving and useful as a pardoned sinner can be. Shouldn't hidden motivations be taken into account? And who can do so except God alone? But perhaps the most remarkable feature of this paragraph is how it ends. With the final day of judgment in view, Paul might have been expected to say, at that time, each pastor will receive his rebuke from God. But instead, he says, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Isn't that wonderful? God is a wise father. He knows how to encourage his children even the feeblest of his children. Of course, this doesn't mean that everything a Christian leader does is beyond reproach, nor is Paul here absolving Christians from the responsibility to discern, to test all teaching by Scripture, to pursue what's best. You, you may or may not be aware of this. If you're a member, you're supposed to have read through the, the whole church covenant, but in point six six in our covenant, our church constitution, there's a review of officers. Church officers here are elders and deacons. This is what the constitution says. Officers shall hold office only as long as they meet the biblical qualifications for their office in the esteem of the church. The church, therefore, shall reconfirm or withdraw its confidence in the biblical qualifications of each officer four years after their ordination and every fourth year thereafter. 
It's constant. It's not just, okay, you became a pastor 20 years ago. You're, you're good for life now. It's, there should be a review of this kind of thing. So Paul is not absolving Christians from the responsibility to discern. He's condemning the kind of judging that simply writes a Christian leader off because he doesn't neatly fit into my camp or because he appears to compete with my preferred guru or because he's not in my pocket. God forbid. I think, I think there's so much from this text that the churches today need to learn in this time of COVID. This, this applies directly to that in a thousand different ways that I'm seeing. I'll be the first to admit, Christian leaders make all kinds of dumb mistakes. They say the stupidest things. Uh, but they're not pawns that churches hire and fire as if they were nothing but the church's employees. The evangelical church is rife with this sort of thing. That, that's the common model of today, I think, for pastoring. The, the pastors are church employees hired and fired basically at will. Where the church is the head and the pastor is the hireling. No. Both the church and the Christian leaders have one supreme head, Jesus Christ himself. And ideally, both the church and the pastor should be working in concert under the one head. In practice, when the church falls away from the gospel, it may be necessary for the leader to take fairly drastic action, like in 2 Corinthians 13. When the leader falls away, it's necessary for the church to take action, 2 Timothy 5. But both sides recognize there is one head. And in the Corinthian situation, Paul judges it particularly important for the believers to recognize that Christian leaders are primarily called to serve the Lord Christ. Therefore, the church does not have the right to stand in judgment over them. Brothers and sisters, we've covered a lot of very important ground today. Uh, Biblical teaching, I think, that is essential to the proper working of a gospel-centered, God-glorifying, obedient church. This is going to set us up as preparing us for where we're going to be going in the rest of this letter. Chapter 5 begins with 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 a very serious discipline case where Paul weighs in with all of his authority. This is going to set us up for where we're going, but also just in our church life. This is practical, practical stuff. But look with me one more time at the big picture, and with this we're going to close. The big picture in your bulletin, the Corinthian Christians must forget their supposed wisdom and their boasting in certain leaders and assess their own status properly as people who belong to Christ. Furthermore, they must recognize that church leaders also belong to Christ as servants who must be found trustworthy. Since Christ is their Lord, he alone will judge, and the Corinthians should not rush into the Lord's work before he returns. Wise leadership will be commended by God. Amen.